0: Our guest today has founded three cybersecurity companies, two of which exited to RSA, the third he is building right now. Eric Olden is the CEO and co-founder of Strata Identity, and he talks on this episode about what it takes to start a company, how to approach getting the first customers, why at Strata they didn't do any outbound as a seed and series A company and the impact that approach had, and also the surprising subject... He liked most at school and which had a big impact on his career. Don't go away. Welcome to the Sales Bluebird podcast, where we help cybersecurity companies grow sales faster. Whether you're a seller, marketer, leader, or founder, we give you tips, tricks, experiences, examples, ideas, and inspiration from people who know a thing or ten about building great cybersecurity companies. I am your host, Andrew Monahan. Our guest today is Eric Olden, co-founder and CEO at Strata Identity. Eric, welcome to Sales Bluebird.
1: Thanks for having me, Andrew. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to this, uh, Eric. You and I are both in Colorado, so we're looking out our windows in different parts of the state right now. Are probably a little bit of snow lying around, but it's good to chat always with someone from uh, the state in which I live. But you've got a, a good history of uh, building, creating and building companies in the cybersecurity space. So I'm really intrigued to dig into that a little bit and learn what you're doing in the past, what you've done in the past, and what you're doing right now. I think there's uh, some interesting areas to cover in there. A quick break to say that this episode is sponsored by IT Harvest. With over 3,200 vendors in cybersecurity, It is hard to keep track of all the latest developments, as well as research and analyze categories and subcategories within cybersecurity, which is where the IT Harvest cybersecurity platform comes in. Want to know which subcategories in cloud security are growing the fastest? You'll get it in a few clicks. Want to know and track everything about your main competitors and keep up with their hiring and news? Simple search to be done. Want to know the top 20 fastest growing companies based out of Israel? Easy. Just a couple of clicks to get that. IT Harvest is the first and only research platform dedicated to cybersecurity. And it's run by Richard Steenan, who has done it all in cybersecurity. From the VP of Research at Gartner, a CMO at a cybersecurity vendor, a lecturer on cybersecurity, advisor to startups, advisory board member at startups, and a main board member as well. The whole lot. Find out more by going to salesbluebird.com slash research. That's salesbluebird.com slash research. Now back to the episode. Eric, um, what was your first real job after college when you're in the big bad world?
1: Well, I actually started my first security software company in college. I was in my junior year at Berkeley and uh, it was 1994 going into 1995. And the web had just come out, and my best friend from high school and I decided to, uh, well, let's start a software company to handle the security of this untamed wilderness that was the web mid '90s. So um, I've only had comp- only had jobs that I've been the founder of, with the rare exception. A few years ago, uh, I went over to run the security and identity division for Oracle. So it was a big transition from being somebody who's used to working in a garage to working and running a massive organization with hundreds of employees and all of that, which comes from Oracle. So that was that was kind of my atypical path.
0: Did you feel like you were, I don't know, you knew what you were doing in 1994 with, with Securant or was it feeling your way every day, every week, trying to figure out what's next? It was more the latter.
1: I think um, I come from an entrepreneurial family where the idea of, uh, hey, if you want something in life, go out and build it. But you know, if you are always working for someone else, you're only going to be uh, able to get so far. And so and my, my friend, my co-founder, uh, he came from a very similar background. So it was a funny drive. We were driving somewhere on. We were roommates in college as well. And. We were driving somewhere on spring break and uh he was graduating a year earlier than i and i as we were driving i said um what are you going to do now that you're going to be out of school and he didn't know and i said well there's this company that makes security software for the web and you know it's a really cool company very cutting edge and yeah you know, i think it's got great future ahead of it and he says well my friend jaunty says well hey could you make an introduction can you, you know, help me meet these people. And I said, well, a little complicated. It's us. Let's do that. Let's make that company. And he was driving at the time. He looks over his shoulder like, are you serious? Like, I'm totally serious. I think we could do it. And then on that car ride down to Santa Barbara, that's when we said, yeah, we're going to do it. By the time we got to, um, we went to the bookstore, we're like, how do you do it? And so we got all the books we could and talked to everybody we could. And, you know, 22-year-olds, started off on a crazy journey that very quickly became, you know, a 300-person organization. And, you know, we were about to go public, dot-com crash happened. So we learned a lot in those couple of years. But um, I think the whole notion that if you can, uh, if you have the guts to carry forward and to move past the dreamer to become a doer, then that's probably the biggest lesson that that he and I learned together.
0: Yeah, that is a key one, right? It's the ideas are all around us, but it's, who actually grabs them and figures out what to do with them are the ones that really make the difference. Um, sounds like you did that. I mean, you got caught up a little bit in the dot com, but you exited to RSA, right, with uh, with Securin. Is that right? That's right.
1: Yep. September
0: 2001. Okay. November 2001. Okay. Uh, and then it looks like you took a, a couple of years to do some angel investing, and I don't know, maybe you know, sit on a beach or something for <laughs> recover from that experience. And then you found that you went back again, and you found with uh, the founding CEO at Simplified, which is a company that, uh, that I've certainly heard of and remember as well. What was the uh, the genesis of Simplified?
1: Yeah, so the um, the very tail end of Securing, I was the CTO of Securant, and I built all the software. I'm responsible for the product. And um, we ran into this problem that companies couldn't connect securely with other companies on the internet, and they needed a trusted way to do that. And so uh, me and another person at Securant, Darren Platt, we said, hey, why don't we create a standard to do this? And then we started talking with a lot of customers and partners. And one thing led to the next. We got a lot of um, great ideas together, and that became the standard SAML. And we put that in the open domain. And that was part of what led RSA to have me sign a non compete for five years so that they didn't buy the same company twice. And I said, sure. I was ready for a little change in scenery, moved to Colorado. Those five years went by in a flash. And then I looked at the market in 2006, and everything was moving into SaaS. And I figured, well, what if you were to use SAML to connect to all of these applications that are out in the world of SaaS? And then when you start to figure out, yeah, that's something that people all need, because nobody's going to use it without security. So then we thought, well, how do you make federation work at scale? And that was the genesis for Simplified. So similar thing, talked to John T, said, hey, let's start another company. And we created Simplified, And we brought Darren Platt into it as well. And that became the kind of the genesis for solving identity for SaaS-based applications. In 2006, it was very early. A lot of companies uh, didn't know what we were talking about. We'd have to spell out software as a service. And if it gives you any kind of flashback to the old days of when you would tell someone on a website, you would have to say HTTP colon slash slash. I mean, today you never would even think to say that, but that is to give you a sense of where we were in 2006, starting the first cloud identity company. And we looked at that and we said, you know, there's a problem here that companies are going to have. Admittedly, we are a couple years early. And so we had to be kind of very, creative on how to develop a product as the market would develop. And uh, we were able to do that. You know, in many ways, I feel like we sold too early because we had at the time that RSA bought us, we had the most users under our platform and so forth. And, um, you know, SaaS was really just starting to take off. So I thought it was kind of funny that RSA wound up buying Companies from me, and I don't know if they <laughs> ever did that before, but uh, it did happen more than five years after the first sale, so I guess we all worked out in the end. But that was the reason that we built Simplified,
0: yeah. That was June 2012, it looks like. Um, you're right, that's when I mean, SaaS was a thing at that point, people would know what you were talking about, but by no means the growth we've seen over the last uh, decade or so since then, absolutely. And then fast forward a little bit, you, I'm kind of intrigued by the, the stop at Oracle because you're this some, as you say, you're someone, you want something, you build it and you create a company and you take control of things and, and and do it. Um, and then in, uh, looks like, uh, October 2017, you made the move to Oracle in their identity management division, it looks like, but still working for a, a big company with, uh, lots of things going on at it. Yeah, I that was a
1: very unusual um, experience, and I had a great great time there. What had happened was that um, Oracle had reached out to me, and they said, "Look, there." The time uh, Thomas Curian was the president of Oracle, and he had reached out through the recruiter saying, "I'd like to meet with you." And the recruiter said, "You know, Thomas wants to meet with you. You should take the meeting." and you know it doesn't happen very often i thought well i'll be in town and so i swung by and i really had no expectation of you know joining oracle i had no real clear idea what he had in mind and as we had a early in-depth conversation we were talking about the kind of future of the cloud and i explained to him my view on multi-cloud and the way that cloud services are highly distributed and you know, really told him a lot about my history of how I saw identity from the beginning to, you know, that time frame, And he said, well, you know, I'd love for you to, to come do that here at Oracle. And I said, you sure? You've got like 150,000 employees that probably know Oracle better than I do. I work out of a garage. And he said, well, that's exactly what we're looking for. We want to take this in a different direction, become more cloud native and so I said, well, if I can learn from someone who has the experience that you do, uh count me in. And so that began began my uh, time with Oracle. And it was very different, uh, as you might imagine, right? You go from a company where I'm used to going from zero to one and from one to ten and so on. Um, that world's very different. And the way that you build software and startups is um you know, I'm a very technical CEO, reformed CTO. And, you know, my point being there that it was really about the tradecraft of how to build software that I realized the biggest contribution that I could bring to the team at Oracle. And so we started really retooling the whole software development process and so forth. And um, it went from release cycles that you would measure in quarters to something that you can measure in days. And that's probably the thing I'm most proud of is making the impact on the speed and the agility. Um, Other things I learned at Oracle is the way in which the really massive enterprises work and how they see the world very differently. I'd always sold to big companies, but it was more of the outside looking in. At Oracle, I was on the inside of one of the biggest companies also selling to other big companies. And so there's a bit of a different calculus involved. And it was fascinating to uh, learn that language and those dialects in so far as the way that um, customers think about how they spend and buy things from the incumbent platform vendor. And then I think the last thing that was most interesting was that I was at Oracle in a period of a lot of change because Oracle was making a move to become you know, cloud focused. And the opportunity that I was seeing was that you didn't have to argue with customer to get them to the cloud. They were already well on their way. What we saw was that they weren't going to just one cloud. They were going to multiple clouds. And my job was to get them to go to the Oracle cloud and make that the most secure and best experience that they could. But I saw the other clouds that were out there Doing a really good job in their own respective way, and looking at that empathetically from the customer standpoint, I realized why would any one company choose to just use one of these clouds? It's crazy. They're not going to do that. And so, kind of tapping on that empathy that I mentioned earlier, um, I looked at it from the customer standpoint and saw the multi-cloud is the future. That's only way to hedge your bets to get the best technology to keep prices in a competitive way. And all of a sudden, I realized that nobody's looking at the world from a multi-cloud standpoint. And that was one of the first um, sparks of realization that that's a massive opportunity that nobody was looking at because everyone seemed to be focused on getting customers onto their cloud versus solving the problem of many Different clouds, and that led to um, Strata.
0: And at Strata, did you put the band back together with the the same people you worked with before, or did you put together a new team?
1: Um, a little bit of both. So, um, you know, starting Strata, I had been, you know, I, my I grew up surfing, and can't do the same amount of surfing living in the mountains, Colorado. Naturally, I have to go on a trip to surf, and I was in a, a surf trip in Sri Lanka. And I was having just kind of a meditative moment out there alone with my thoughts. And I was thinking through that issue of, well, how would you make this multi cloud thing work from an identity standpoint? And kind of drawing on that experience I had at Simplified, where we tied everything together, um, I realized like what's new is old and what's old is new. And maybe we could find a way to um, take some of the things that worked in the kind of second generation of SaaS identity, but take it to the next level. There've been a lot of things going on with uh, Kubernetes as an example, uh, where companies were learning to manage many things using a concept called orchestration. And So you had server orchestration, which was part of how you take Docker containers of things, which is really the next generation of VMware virtualization, but now you've got a lot of things that you need to manage and so kubernetes came out as a way to manage many different things and i thought what if you could apply kubernetes thinking but to the identity systems and that when i kind of said that out loud i was like well you would build the vmware of identity and i thought well vmware great company had a great outcome why don't i do that and so started to th- Think through a little bit more what would be involved in how to do that. And the team is one of the first things that come to mind. So I reached out to um, Tofer, who is our CTO. And Tofer and I had worked together at Simplified. I brought him into Oracle and I said, Hey, Tofer, I got this crazy idea. What if we could do this and make it work across all of the different identity technologies there? And he, for a moment. He says, that'd be really difficult. But it's something that I think I could try because the hard problems are the ones that are most satisfying to solve. Um, And then I went to another person who worked for me at Oracle, uh, Eric Leach. And I said, look, I need someone who can run product. You've got a lot of deep product experience um, going back to the early days of Sun and then Salesforce and Oracle. And so I thought, well, it's a pretty good team. We've got uh CTO, and we've got a product person, and we've got myself. And then I went to the next ring out. Those were uh, my two co-founders. And then we very quickly got people who had worked with me um, over the last 15, 20 years and brought them in who have been with me at two, three, as many as four of my previous companies. So really got a lot of the core band back together. Um, My original co-founder and best friend, Jaunty, he was running another company. So um, we had to kind of just work with him as an investor. But it was a lot of fun because in those early days, you really have so much work to do. You can't spend all your time distracted about trying to see if you can trust the people around you. So, um, that was the, that was the route. So one became three became seven. And then we kept that seven for almost a year. And then, um, we had raised our se- seed and then we started to, to grow with our institutional financing, um, you know, with, uh, with Menlo ventures leading that, and then, um, grew to where we are today. So started the company in 2019 and here we are 2023 and going into our fourth year and uh, things are just up and to the right, really happy.
0: So it's interesting, you know, when when you were sitting there and you got that idea in your mind and your two co-founders are, are kind of on board, any step of the process after that with the seven that you mentioned and beyond where you're thinking, I wonder if these people that have worked with me before will want to join me or whether they've you're going to have some sort of reticence, or, or, not, not, but you personally, but just jumping on an idea like this. Were you we quite gratified to see that happen, or we, would you think, oh yeah, it should be no problem? Yeah, it's
1: one of the things that I would give advice to founders or early stage companies is really understand how different the road is in the startup world than it is in the corporate world. What I mean is that the a friend of mine has a metaphor. He talks about a dirt road versus a highway. And they're both ways to get from one place to the other. But if you are used to driving on a highway and you know it's smooth and you're going fast and it's really obvious that you keep driving in one direction, um, that doesn't necessarily translate well to the off-road where you're now you're in a dune buggy that's just kind of holding it together with whatever you can. And you know, guess what? There's no roads. You're on the open prairie. So whether you choose to go left, go right, or continue straight is all on the person driving the car. And um, there's a lot of ambiguity in that world. And the people who I've found are most successful in startups are ones that have been down that road before. Maybe they're not the founder, but they're not surprised when things get... Completely turned upside down and you know in my world it's like okay that's why i have a roll cage on the dune buggy just push it over and keep going because we we knew that could happen which is why we put things in place to handle those uh, surprises whereas someone who's never rolled a car metaphorically they may get freaked out like oh my gosh like that wasn't supposed to happen and kind of have a hard time getting back into the car And have a hard time saying, all right, let's keep going, especially when you know that there's more of that rocky road ahead. So I think the thing that I look for, excuse me, what I look for more than um, anything is the person's grit, right? Do they have what it takes to get through the rough road, the uncertainty or the ambiguity that comes with early stage startups? Because you can't learn that. I think that's a much more of a DNA kind of thing, uh, or it's deep experience and scar tissue comes to mind. But um, I think that's probably, you know, the biggest uh, the way to distinguish who's ready for startup and who's not. Um, and virtually everybody in the early stages, C to Series A, you've got to have people who love, not just they can do okay. But they have to love the bumpiness of that dirt road. Otherwise, you get. Um you you just start to wonder, like, hey, are we going in the right direction? I don't see any signs. And you know, that that can be hard for some people to make that transition.
0: I remember when I moved from a bigger organization to my first uh startup, I was a you know employee number 40 or something like that. So not, not in at the start like you are, but, but beyond that. And I was I came from a mentality in sales where you hit numbers every quarter, right? And if you don't hit numbers every quarter things might get bad for you. <laughs> that was the, the world that I came from. And of course, you get to uh, at that stage, it was probably a series A startup. We didn't have a product to sell yet. Um, and I was, you know, a small team of us right there evangelizing and, and early adopting, you know, adop- taking on early adopters, things like that. But I felt very uncomfortable with the fact that, uh, you know, I've been here six months and, you know, I'm not, you know, closing a whole bunch of deals right now. This feels very weird to me. Um, I was okay with the ups and downs because, you know, in sales, you kind of have to deal with that a bit more than most. But it was that very different viewpoint on what we're trying to do. And I think that's what you were saying, right? You're thinking much further on than are we going to do something by the end of this month or the end of this quarter? You know, you're not necessarily judged on that. It's on the trajectory that you're looking at. Yeah, and
1: and I think the, you're absolutely right on that, Andrew. I think another thing to, uh, that that brings to mind Uh, You know, I've been running startups, like building them from zero to, you know, hundreds of employees that that is what I do. Um, So all I can say, most common question that early stage founders, CEOs are always asked is to forecast revenue. And it's impossible. And it may not even be the goal in the earliest days, not about getting revenue. You have to manage your investors' expectations that what we need to do in the very beginning is figure out what is the problem that we're going to solve. And if the the next step is, what is the product we need to build to solve that problem? And then the step after that is, how do we sell the product? So you're going to, and then after that is, how do we sell a lot of that product? So stage four, you've got a whole lot of different metrics that make sense when you're trying to scale sales and a big mistake that, um, even good investors have a pattern where they're trying to predict the future. And so they want to know, you know, what's the number, what are we going to do in revenue this year? And the truth is that you don't know. And so my advice is to, you know, be very upfront with your investors saying, look, we're, we, if we get any revenue, that's, that's, Icing on the cake. But what we need to do right now is set a set of criteria that we're going to identify the market that we're going to go into. And the way that we're going to do that is by interviewing tons of people who have hopefully have this problem and hear from their words what it is. And then we call that customer development. And um, there's a woman who wrote a book named Alvarez that's got the best um, guide on that. And then the second is now you build your product and you're trying to get product market fit. And I have a philosophy of what I call the dirty dozen. So your very first 12 customers are um they're really hard because they don't know what they're buying, you don't know what you're building, and so you've got to get into the you know, you got to get into the the nuts and bolts on that. And I'm talking about the founders and you know, I did half of the customer development calls and you know, it's all hands on deck. It's like, hey, let me interview you because I'm trying to understand what it is that uh, you, you can't solve today. And if you're trying to sell something in that conversation, people get turned off. And anyways, it doesn't matter. You don't have something to sell. So you find your way with these early 12 customers and I come from the enterprise. So I'm thinking, you know, 12 logos, not individuals. If uh, you you kind of get through that the dirty dozen, what I found is there's a pretty interesting pattern is that you're you're on the right track if six of those twelve want to buy what you built. And what about the other six? Well, three of them will buy it if you add one feature or something else like that. And so you you can get them if you make changes. The other three, they want things that are gonna take your product in the wrong direction. And so you need to have the discipline to say, thanks for sharing your insights, but we're not gonna try and make these last third our customer because it takes the focus off of our product. So when I say the dirty dozen, I'm really talking about, you know, getting nine customers out of that and walking away from three that, um, that, that aren't a fit. And, I've seen this now work not only in my own companies but in others that I'm an investor in, and so forth so that pattern is and maybe the number could shift a little bit, but that mindset I think is the thing that people um should take away from from what I'm sharing at the moment because if you have that mindset that we can get a critical mass and then maybe make some tweaks, we've got something that's gonna meet the broad needs of the big market and so Um, At that point, you are making revenue Um, depending on your specifics of your business that may be a lot or a little and who's to say. Um, My company, Strata, happened to uh, find a really, really lucrative problem to solve because without it, our customers were spending tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars doing things manually for something that we invented software to automate. So we have a very kind of different value proposition than most security companies. Um, But then then now we're in our Series B and our focus is on scaling the go-to-market. And so um, to do that, we moved from founder selling to having an actual full-on team. And we only got the full team with the Series B. And before that, we had some account managers Count executives who would handle the relationship with the customer, but the founders and the executive team have to be doing those early days of selling because no one knows the market like we do. No one knows the technology like the ones building it. And so if you rely on or try and outsource that to someone else, you're either, you're, I don't, I haven't seen it be successful. Maybe people can do it, but what I've seen is you usually. Either find someone who says, oh, we couldn't sell it to some so and so because you didn't have this feature or that feature, or they didn't understand what the customer is asking for. And therefore, they couldn't translate that and bring that data into the product so you can build the product to do what it needs to do. So it's either a communication mismatch or it's a mismatch on um, kind of maturity. You can't sell startup software to every company. Some companies just can't buy it for a host of reasons. But um, yeah, that's kind of a little winding road of what I've seen in those early sales days.
0: Eric, um, I have a list of, believe it or not, 35 questions. The good news is I'm not going to read all 35 questions. I'm going to ask you to pick three random numbers, see more than 35. And I'll read out these questions to get to know you a little bit better.
1: Okay, one, three, and 13. Okay, one,
0: a oh, philosophical one. What happens when we die?
1: Well, that's a that's an easy to answer question, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think it depends on who you are and what you've done with this opportunity. So um, my personal belief is that there's a, a great sunset in the uh, sky, and you go from uh, walking around and being bits and atoms to kind of becoming one with the light.
0: That's quite a quite a thoughtful way to answer that. It's probably a lot more thoughtful than I would be, I think, uh, caught off the cuff on that one.
1: I like how you approached it, though. I meditate on that a fair amount, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the imagery that I have when I do. And uh, I think, um, like I said, I, I'm probably different for everybody, but that's what I'm expecting.
0: Good. Well, question number three is a bit more straightforward. Sweet the four seasons or cabin in the woods? Cabin in the Woods. Where is that cabin for you? Mm, I would say that cabin would
1: be probably in Crested Butte, Colorado. If you've ever been there, it's one of our favorite places to go. And you've got the, the beautiful, natural beauty that you just can't find anywhere else on earth. And you know, for all my work experience, it's all about working with people. And what's appealing about the Cabin in the Woods is that you just go there and bring a good book. Bring someone, people that you love, and go experience that on your own.
0: Yeah, you've, you've committed the cardinal sin about Crested Butte, which is telling people about it. (laughs) Would I say
1: Crested Butte? I meant Breckenridge. Oh, the uh, underground place called Breckenridge that nobody knows about. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, Breckenridge is a slightly different vibe than, uh, you know, I think the DNA of it's the same. It's just obviously easier to access than Crested Butte. Um, both places are pretty special with that kind of Main Street vibe about them, right? And then 13 is best subject in school.
1: The best subject, the one I found most interesting, um, believe it or not, was a pre-law class called rhetoric, and it was the logic of reasoning. And when I was in school, I thought at one point, maybe I'll be a lawyer. So I took all the, the pre-law, and that was most interesting part of pre-law at in my university. and. The way that they taught you how to structure uh, reasoning and arguments allows me to really, I think the big gift that I got from that was to be able to take a deep aspect of empathy. And you had to argue both sides of any position. And so that I think was really um, insightful because there's always more than one way to look at something. And I took that and, you know, I use it every day. but. It also was very uh, important to craft how I I do a lot of writing. I do the majority of the uh, the writing for the company, especially in the early days. We have more people now that that do more of the writing, but when I do write, it's really structured and it's about communicating and trying to uh, answer the questions that I think the reader has and that I learned from rhetoric. It was something that people always, Scratched their head when I would say, "Yeah, rhetoric was my favorite, uh, my favorite course, but that's the reason why."
0: Isn't it funny how sometimes the the non standard classes, courses, things like that that we we take and do have more of an impact on how we think about our lives than the standard ones?
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And I think the second one was the it was a course that was about world religion, and that exposed me to things like Buddhism and um, some things that I still practice to this day. I grew up in a very Roman Catholic family in California, and boy, that was very different than what I learned about Buddhism, and so, you know, to your point, it wasn't the course that, you know, I studied religious studies or anything like that, but it had an elective and thought, that sounds interesting, and went in a very different direction uh, after that.
0: So you get to your Series B at Strata, and that's to help scale the go-to-market. What, what are the first hires that you made on the sales site?
1: With Series B, we had our CRO on board. Uh, Drew had joined us uh, the about nine months before we closed Series B. And we said to him, we said, look, go build out your team and know that we're need to really get people who know this industry because um, identity, which is managing user security and, and passwords and things of that type, uh, is very different than other kinds of technology like storage infrastructure, complex, mission critical. But we have a, seen it's very difficult to transfer from, say, storage into identity. It's even harder to go from um, you know non-infrastructure into identity, still a little bit, little bit tricky to go from security into identity. So there's a real high uh, indexing on getting people who know the very pain points that the customers we sell to understand those. The second thing that we did was recognize that you know no rep is gonna have a Rolodex or a LinkedIn network big enough to carry their number carry the year. So you got to think about how you get your demand generation happening. And in the early stages, series seed and series a, we had a policy at strata having zero cold calls and no spam email. And do you say that to most sales leaderships or sales teams and say, well, how can I do my job without like the main, main tool? Well, the way that we did it was we took a content marketing approach. And so we wrote up all of this content around thought leadership to explain what this new world of identity orchestration is about, how multi-cloud is different, and do these problems uh, resonate with with the reader. And what we found is we produced a lot. And that's what I was saying earlier. Is like I did a lot of writing, a lot of blog posts, a lot of white papers. And you put that out there, and then people who have the problem they Google and they search and they find that, and they go, "Ah, this company knows what I'm talking about. Let me reach out." And they come inbound. So inbound is a term that I think HubSpot had come up with, and wherever it came up, doesn't matter who coined it. But what's different about inbound, and you're I'm probably preaching to the choir here. Is the difference between trying to sell something to someone who's coming towards you saying, I have this problem. Can you help me with it? Versus I'm busy doing other things and you're pestering them with a bunch of emails and cold calls saying, hey, is this a problem? Is this a problem? The issue is that some people will respond just to get you to stop bugging them, but they don't have the problem. And so you waste all of these cycles chasing this person. You're, you get happy ears. You think, oh, well, they keep returning my call. They wanted to see a demo. But reality is they're maybe often they're just too polite to tell you to stop calling them. So on the other hand, when you have inbound, those are the ones to spend your time with in the early days because you don't have to chase them. In many ways, they're chasing you. And so I think that was a was a a surprise to a lot of people that we said in my marketing team and my sales teams. You can't send a spam email and you can't do a cold call. So, think of how you're going to attract people. And once you dedicate your, your whole strategy around that, it starts to multiply. So, now we, we do some outreach, but it's always content driven. And it's not, uh, and I think there's another thing to recognize that HubSpot does a really good job on content marketing but when we go and we talk to prospects we're bringing something that's useful to them and the outreach isn't hey we want to you know the cliche do you have 10 seconds do you have 10 minutes of course everyone does but no one wants to waste it with a stranger so instead we like to say hey here are common here's a a solution guide for companies like others in your industry that solve these particular problems. If this is helpful and you'd like to learn more, let me know. And then you'd be surprised how many people respond to that and they say, ah, great. You weren't asking me for anything. You're just offering something. And that content isn't a brochure. Content is empathetically written to address their problems so that you get that alignment between what the customer is trying to solve and what you have to offer. When that lines up, then The sale happens on its own in many ways. I won't say any product sells itself. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you align the interest and the solution. There's a lot of selling that has to happen, but it's a lot more effective than go out and spraying and praying that you're hitting somebody with just bulk email. Because let's be honest, everyone's got caller ID today and everyone's got a spam filter on their email. So if those are the, the two mechanisms that, are the uh, the natural enemy to cold calls and spam, then I think it's time that we all get more creative and, and do the extra work to add value instead of extract.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's become a little bit ridiculous. Uh, you know, the, the solution to we don't have enough pipeline is make more calls and send more emails. And uh, that doesn't really help anyone um, at any stage of the buying or selling process to, to really be more effective. And, you know, this this whole concept of, I'd much rather be working with someone who came to me with, you know, I'm already thinking like you are. I, I like your philosophy of how you're doing things. I have that same sort of problem and the way you solve it is interesting to me. I'd rather sell to that person than the person you're, you're hoping to grab as they run past your house and say, come in, you know, I've got something good for you, right? It's such a different dynamic when you're working with someone, depending on who's coming to who at the start. Absolutely, Andrew. I'm wondering if there's uh if if you've got things in that in your content or your your way that you work in the market to try and get the attention, um, to try and rise above the noise. I mean great content is part of it, I get it. I wonder if there's other things that really work for you, little tools.
1: Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things that that work that have um, you know, changed because we started Strata a few months before COVID came. And so all of a sudden, live events disappeared. And in the past, we used to use live events at Simplified and Securant and everyone else was doing it. And that kind of became a, a common way to, to find yourself in the presence of other people. When that goes away, what we've we seen working really well on digital media is this content, the content strategy. And so part of that, Is a really strong SEO game because SEO you're able to tap all of that search behavior. Those people who are trying to find something, you want to be able to be well found in that regard. So I think there's a great, great content that's useful and not selling. Use SEO to get that found and discoverable, and then one of when you kind of break down the content um, world, the way that I think about it is this kind of a buyer cycle and the way that, you know, think about the last time you bought something and my LinkedIn profile and I own the web domain, bought, not sold. And so that really is central to what I'm describing. So how do you get people to buy where you're not selling? And the way that you get that mind shift is to really take Empathy and get into the buyer's mindset and say, okay, I'm trying to buy. I need to solve this problem. How do I do that? And then trace all of the steps that that person would go through. And it's a journey, it's nonlinear. And it rarely starts with a phone call to the sales department of some vendor, right? And so you work backwards from that experience. And then you realize you got to have content that explains uh, the very top of the funnel awareness then we don't have content that's something we can engage with then we want to have content that will convert uh audience into uh, an opportunity and then you want to have content that will justify a purchase and being able to when i say non is you never know which way they're going to go through it doesn't go like from a to b to c you want to be able to have them jump from a to the end because they may get excited but say, well, if I can't justify this to the CFO, I'm never going to get anywhere. So having that kind of end of funnel justification content handy allows them to do what they need to do, and maybe they re-engage with you and go on through. So part of all of my experience and success in selling has really come from a lot of marketing because of that bought not sold uh, mindset. When you get into things that stand out, find a way to make a really differentiated position that is defensible with your architecture. And what I mean by that is if you're using superlatives to say you're the fastest of something or you're the biggest or the smallest or you know any of those superlatives, it's not hard for your competitor to say, oh, they're fast, we're faster. And next thing you know, your marketing muddies the water and nobody can tell the difference at all. So what we look for in all my companies, but this one that I'm with Strata today, what we looked at is let's find something about our architecture that no one else can just rip off because saying you do orchestration, you know, easy to say, very hard to do. So we lead with show, don't tell. And that means that we demonstrate how this software works. And we had a bunch of pretenders come into the market once we started to get popular saying, oh, we do orchestration. And then the customer would say, oh, you both say that you do this. And I say, well, watch, we'll show you, have them show you how they're solving your specific use case. And if they can't put up, then maybe they should shut up. And you can be polite about it, of course. But my point being is that the proof is in the pudding. And so we really drive an evidence-based model, and that allows us to stand out. And the last thing I'll say on that is uh, pricing. And we took a very radical approach to pricing in identity. In a world where all of the vendors sell on the number of users on your system, um, we don't. We charge by the number of applications we secure and the amount of infrastructure we integrate with. And so it's the same affordable price, whether you've got 10 users or 10 million users. And so that is something we can get very quickly with to the customer to say, look, you can have the biggest e-commerce site in the world, and you're not going to pay a penalty because we don't charge you for any of your users. And they can then take that to the competition and say, how are you going to charge me for this? And it's very hard to switch pricing models. Imagine trying to go from everything's built around per user to can't charge by user. So those are ways to stand out, which are very hard to replicate. You really need to either change your architecture or change your whole business model. And those create these barriers to entry and make sure that it works for the customer more than anything. And So this consumption model, we take the risk off the table for the customer. They can start small. Spend $3,000. Now we have customers spending millions of dollars per year. But they start really small, get confident that it works, and let it grow from there. And we've never lost a customer.
0: You told me beforehand, uh, Eric, that you had something. If someone gave you, was it uh, their identity or uh, email address or something, you could do something with it? Who was that? Oh, I'm
1: glad you brought that up. Yes, Andrew. So, you know, it's a new market, and we are really excited about identity orchestration. We think it can solve all of the identity use cases that uh, we've come into contact with. And we have a a kind of a contest of sorts that if any of your listeners have an identity use case that they want to submit to Strata, and what we'll do is we'll give them a pair of Apple EarPods, the pro ones, the real nice ones. And um, so they're interested, uh, they can go and learn about this online. And we have a website, that they can go to. And it's at strata.io. That's S-T-R-A-T-A dot I-O. And you can also email us at podcast at strata.io. And that's podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And uh, what we do is basically you go to the website, you'll see the use case challenge and uh, see if you can throw a challenge to us that you're facing. And um, we'd be happy to demonstrate to you how we do it and give you a pair of, of wonderful earpods, noise-canceling ones.
0: I love these creative ideas, especially when it's, it's not, you know, let me just send you something, right? There's something attached to their value. They're going to get something from this that could make a real difference. And there's a good kind of marriage there of what you're each trying to get from such a transaction. That's right. It's a win-win. Um, do you have a question for me, Eric, about uh, this world that we're in? Yeah, Andrew, I, I
1: would love to hear from you because I, I know you you live and breathe this space and everyone's always looking for more opportunities and, you know, a lot of different channels that are out there. There's online, there's events. Where are you seeing today uh, opportunities to build pipeline and find opportunities?
0: Yeah, um, this is probably the number one challenge that most cybersecurity startups are dealing with right now. right? They, they're one of the three thousand, and they're thinking, "How do? What can I do to be noticed and do it in a manner that actually will drive meetings with the right sort of people that I, that I want to meet with?" Um, and I think a lot of people are, are trying to figure this out right now. I'll just give you two or three things I've seen from some of my clients uh, in you know wider kind of network that seem to work better than most, um, each with you know various costs attached to doing it. So. You, Depending on the stage the company's at, they'll have to decide whether they're ready for it or not. Um, I'll tell you one that is really interesting to me is that who your VC is uh, matters a lot. You know, I've seen, I think Andreessen Horowitz were the first, in my eyes anyway, the first ones maybe 10 years ago, we had this idea of value-added uh, VC where you didn't just get money, you got into their whole world and they had a, a good market team and a hiring team and a whatever it might be, right, marketing team that would help you out. What I'm seeing from some VC firms now is where they're really good at bringing CISOs into their networks and then using um, those relationships to get meetings with their their portfolio companies. So they'll say, look, this company is in a space X. We have 55 CISOs who we interact with who are part of our advisor world or wherever it might be. And some portion of those are actually keen to learn more, interact with companies in that sort of world. So... You know, obviously they don't charge for that. You just you take the money, and that's part of the service they provide. But some of them are doing a really good job of that, and I've seen some startups uh, get a really healthy number of meetings per week just from their VC, uh, they found the, the VCs on the board and the little networks they have around that. So that's one thing that's important. And somewhat similar but different is I've seen there's a there's a, there's a strata of service providers right now. Who um, they're they charge to meet with their it's like their little VC communities, right? So you know, you might you might run a little company and you might know 50 CISOs or 50CISOs and 50 CiSO minus ones or VPs of security, whoever might be in your your network, and that person does a really good job of keeping in touch with them and again, they'll take on only a small number of clients at a time and then they'll advocate for you. To get the meetings, you know, the one-hour briefings with the security leaders, where they're coming in knowing why they're meeting with you, is high-quality people who are used to working with startups and want to hear what you're talking about. Right, very, very different to meeting booking companies, which are, you know, low-level; just anyone shows up or doesn't show up usually, um, and it can be a challenge. So there's there's two areas right there which I've seen uh, work very well on a more tactical basis. Uh, my last kind of thought for everyone is what I've seen happen is two or three startups in, in similar but different areas of cybersecurity might team up and say, let's go on a dinner roadshow. Um, and one of them might have, they might have hired an evangelist that used to be a CISO, something like that, where they can say, well, you know, John Smith, the former CISO at this, this, and this, is going to speak at, and there's a dinner happening and, you know, everyone's kind of charged with, with getting people to the dinner. That seems to work quite well. I think especially bouncing back from from COVID where people are ready for face-to-face interaction. They like that. But I think the key is you got to have a a person, you know, the kingpin in the middle, um, hear someone speak or interact with or meet with them and, and then also meet with your peers. So I don't know. I mean, that's three things that I've seen uh, work more often than not. As you know, you know, this is a world where there's no... There's no absolutes. Uh, you got to really kind of work at this and, and be creative. But uh, I've seen those things work for other companies.
1: Yeah, that's great. Very very helpful. You're right about the the investors can be re- very helpful in uh, making connections. And so yeah, if we we benefit from that. We've gotten great uh, relationship introductions from Telstra Ventures, from Enlo Ventures, and from Forge One Capital. So they've been. Wonderful. And then our smaller venture partners, uh, Innovating Capital and Preface Ventures have been really good at kind of opening doors because, you know, smaller funds have a higher concentration in any given investment. So we got a lot of their attention. So that's worked well for us as well.
0: Well, Eric, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. It's it's truly been a pleasure hearing about uh, all the big difference you've made in the cybersecurity world over the last 20, 25 years. Um, if someone wants to reach out to you personally and, and continue the conversation, what's the best way to do that?
1: Sure. Send me an email, uh, eric, E-R-I-C, at strata.io.
0: Well, that's great. Listen, I wish you and the team all the best for the rest of the year and into 2024 as well.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for having me, Andrew.
0: Well, that was a fun discussion with someone who's had a big impact on the cybersecurity marketplace over the last 20, 25 years. In fact, you know, one of the things I asked Eric before we recorded was, you know, what does he want to get from something like this? And he said he wants, he likes giving back. He likes mentoring uh, people. And I think this is one way to do it by sharing some of his experiences. For me, three takeaways I had, even though it was a whole ton. First one was that the idea that he had about No Outbound as an early stage company. Um, You know, it's really hard to say that uh, what the market really needs is more emails and more phone calls and, you know, shout louder to try and get more pipeline. But, you know, I get it, right? It's tough because, you know, we can't feel like we're sitting back sometimes waiting for the market to come to us. But I think what Eric really talked about was a very thoughtful content strategy that can make a difference, right? Done the right way and done with the right longer term viewpoint, um, it can make a difference. You know, he is a CEO, setting the tone for that makes all the difference, you know, if he's the CEO and he's asking for how many MQLs and SQLs and what was our pipeline growth today and yesterday and things like that, going to have that very short-term thinking in the sales and marketing team. But if you've got someone who really creates the culture of doing it right and thinking about how to really engage with, a, with an audience, it makes a difference. And here's where I think, if I'm a salesperson, let's say I'm selling Pepsi. I want to be selling Pepsi to people who like Pepsi. Right? I don't want to be selling Pepsi to people who like Coke and try to convince them that, the, that my way is a better way. And a, co- and a really thoughtful content strategy will help to bring people to us who are already thinking about the same ideas and the philosophies that we are. So I thought that was really telling how he set the stall out in the company about how they were going to do that. Second thing was, um, when he said you know, quite near the start, the idea about there's lots of ideas out there but really you need people who are willing to do the work. Um, it takes a lot of work. It takes hard work. It takes thoughtful work, but you got to do the work. You know, ideas are, are 10 a penny. Uh, but the person that figures out a work has to be done, be what it is at the right time to be done. And then goes about doing it is the people that re- make the real difference. And I think uh, aligned to that, but different is my third takeaway. When he talked about grit, I love the analogy that uh, they used about, you know, there's, there's a dirt road and there's the freeway. Uh, some of us just thrive better when there's a freeway where, you know, you got barrier down each side and you're going on a smooth tarmac and it's fast and you're just getting somewhere. And, you know, there's definitely things along the way that are tough, but, you know, it's it's a, it's a set way to do it versus the dirt road, which, you know, it, it's bumpy, it's it twists and turns. Some points it might end and you have to go off road and figure things out. So having people that are comfortable with the dirt road um, and not just, you know, sitting happy with the freeway Um, and his idea of the roll cage, you know, as he was saying it, I was thinking the mental roll cage you need to have that uh, we're going to be okay, Right. We're going to work through things and there's going to be these things where the the car tips up uh, along the way um, and we're going to get it back on the wheels and keep going forward and just not be put off or give up when these things. Uh, happen. So I love that uh, that way you approached that as an analogy for doing it. So what a great conversation with Eric, and I wish everyone on the team at strata success for 2023 and beyond. It would mean a lot to me and to the continued growth of the show if you'd help get the word out. So how do you do that easily? There are two ways. Firstly, just simply send a link to a friend, send a link to the show, to this episode. Um, you can email it, text it, Slack it, whatever works for you and it's easy for you. The second way is to leave a super quick rating. And sometimes that can seem complicated. So I've made it as easy for you as I can. You simply have to go to ratethispodcast.com slash cyber. That's ratethispodcast.com slash cyber and explains exactly how to do it. Either of these ways will take you less than 30 seconds to do and it will mean the world to me. So thank you.